Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I am your host, Ken Seymour, with your other host, Richard Geiger. Hi. I gotta say, I'm pretty excited. Usually I'm excited. This is not anything out of the ordinary, but I'm really excited. Uh, today we have a fantastic guest, acclaimed author, Jody Lynn Nye. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, have you... Uh, have you ever seen me this kind of this kind of giddy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. See, so just so that you know, um, I I have a I have a very very fun fun reaction internally where I just try and hold everything down when I get to talk to somebody that I've been wanting to talk to for a little while. <laughs> so if I seem a little odd, that's probably what it is. It's an excitement level. That's that's okay. Yeah. But uh, so for those of our listeners who may not be completely familiar with your work, uh, if you would, give just a very brief description or a very long description, whichever you prefer, of uh, who you are and some of the things that they may recognize you from. I have been writing for a number of years now. I've got over 50 books out and uh, 170 short stories, a lot of them with a humorous bent. I've also had the privilege of collaborating with some of the greatest names in the, in the science fiction and fantasy business. And McCaffrey, Piers Anthony, uh, and Robert Asprey, of course. So many of the things that you might recognize are some of the Myth Adventures books. Robert Asprey wrote the first 12. He and I wrote the next six in a short story collection together, and I've continued on since he passed away. Uh, I wrote several books with Anne McCaffrey. And I have a number of things of my own that have received some, I think, uh, good reviews so uh well everything i saw was good many of those things might have gone by uh a lot of people say know your name you know your name oh you know your name did you write the dragon lover's guide to burn (laughs) oh yes yeah i did (laughs) (laughs) well we were talking a little bit before we started and i mentioned that it was itching the back of my mind in a very similar way that i i knew you from somewhere there was something very specific. It's not it's like not just knowing the names. Like, well, there's something that I really liked. What, what was it? And then uh, my wife pointed it out to me. I will put it up on the screen here. The uh, the visual guide to Xanth. Uh, my introduction to science fiction was through just a handful science fiction and fantasy through a handful of authors. Piers Anthony being among them. And then this this guide was my introduction to your writing, and I, it's it's very well loved and dog-eared, <laughs> and uh, it was one of my earlier possessions, along with uh, several other things, and it, it's still a joy just to kind of to flip through it and see some of the things that that I loved from years ago. Oh, I I loved that series, and it was a lot of fun to work with Piers on that, and also with Todd Hamilton, who is the fabulous artist who did all the internal illustrations. Well, let's start with, uh, I always like to start at the beginning, just because, you know, uh, chronological order is sometimes easier in any storytelling. Uh, uh, <laughs> so you've been writing for a long time. Did you start writing in, in like school? Uh, were you trained to do this? Or was this something that just was born of love? What were, what were the things that inspired you to create uh, these stories for everyone to be able to read and uh, enjoy. Oh, I started I started telling stories before I could really write well, definitely before cursive. And I 
published my very own first book. Uh, I was about six out of my father's office paper, stapled it together. So I was, in fact, a publisher as well <laughs> at that age. But it was, uh, it was something that I always did. I told stories to my brothers and my cousins. And when I became a camper at Sleepaway Camp, uh, my, my fellows, when they shut off the lights at our bunk room, I would tell people stories. And uh, when I became a junior counselor, I had a captive audience. So uh, they, would, they would hear stories from me late at night. And just kept on. Years and years and years until I finally figured out that, hey, actual people are writing these books. Maybe I could be one of them. Fantastic. Hmm. I, uh, it's a little bit different, the environment the writing environment, or at least the, the publishing environment today, uh, to, to when you started. Um, what have you thought about this shift in, in the way the, the average individual who wants to create a story and get it out to people to read has changed? In a way, it's like book publishing was in the really very beginning because you could have books printed up yourself and flog them on the streets by yourself and considering that publishers these days want you to do quite a lot of the publicity yourself we're actually hearkening back a couple hundred years instead of being totally of the future it's just that we can now produce infinitely more copies and our reach is all the way around the world but there we are still, you know, hawking our own wares. Well, that's kind of, in a way, how we, how we encountered you at uh, Indie PopCon, being at, uh, being at a, a booth and being able to kind of meet the fans as they are able to come around and, and put, a, put a personal experience uh, to some of the things that they've enjoyed in the past. What's it like being able to have that opportunity to just kind of see some of the people and and get some impressions? Well, let me first praise the Bard's Tower booth. Alexi Vandenberg has been uh, running this. We are a celebrity author experience where you get to meet authors in the same way that at the very same convention you could go and shake hands with, have your picture taken with, uh, television, movie, uh, voice actors of all kinds, uh, performers, pro wrestlers, and have uh, a face-to-face with people that you might have admired in, in a different way. Notably missing from the, the ranks of those people who sit in those booths, usually, are authors, who are in fact responsible for the words that are said by all of those actors and performers that, that you admire otherwise. So to have the Bard's Tower available for us is, is a great thing. Now for me, it's a great change from what I normally do because I'm generally facing a screen full of words and not talking and not meeting the people whose uh, experience with my work. I, I don't get a chance to talk to the people very often who are reading my books. And it's wonderful because I get such great feedback from them. And it, it buoys me up. It, it encourages me to go back and, and get back to work. <laughs> but 
it's nice to have a break away and actually talk to people for a change. I feel like that's how even even if you look at how the music industry kind of is was or is where people were handing out demo CDs or tapes out of the trunk of their car or, you know, they're distributing stuff on things like SoundCloud now. So, like, they're publicizing themselves to get out there to be heard. And what you said is, sounds like you're kind of doing the the same thing. It is not unlike that. But in this case, we are actually selling books and... Uh, a lot of the, the demo records went to the public to the record companies for free in hopes that they would pick them up. I'm I'm dealing with a finished product, but in a way, it's it's not dissimilar. I'm trying to find fans, somebody who might not be familiar with me or might not be familiar with the work that I've done since the one or two or nine things that they picked up. So, uh, and it's kind of fun. So, how do those initial things get? put into print form then. So like someone's got to be able to, you know, put the words on a piece of paper and bind them all together. Right. So like, where does that initial, like, okay, so I started this, I've got this thing. How do you get that created so that it can then go out to other people? Well, I, I actually teach a, a writing workshop at Dragon Con, which is coming up in about, seven days and I try to encourage people then to put their work into the very best shape that they possibly can then put it into the hands of possibly a copy editor or a writing group or somebody that they have hired to go over their their manuscript in detail and make it the very best possible thing that they can for the publisher and then start submitting it. You always start with the highest paying or most prominent publishing house that you can get and just have a list when it comes back from that one, send it to the next one, and keep on going down the line. If you have created something that doesn't fit neatly into a genre, well, fortunately, people have opened up genres. There never was paranormal romance before. There were never time travel vampire stories before, and there are now. There were never uh, psychic dragons solving crime stories before, but there are now. So if it is really something that you can't get anyone else to believe in, fortunately, there are people to help you every step of the way of creating your own books and putting them up for sale. So it's possible to do it with the help of what we call legacy publishers or bricks-and-mortar publishers, small presses, uh, vanity press, but you can also just completely do it yourself. You, If you go through, say, Amazon, every step that you let them take for you, you get less and less and less of your own royalties. On the other hand, they'll do it for you. And it's, it's great not to have to know how to, to format but you could also learn that, depending on how much you want to get into it. If you just simply want to write the stories and let somebody else do all the publishing work for you, you can do that. I'm sure. I'm sure that's probably what the the popular uh, image is whenever whenever they think of a writer that's that's toiling over their story, and when it's done, it's 
It's just, well, here's my stack of paper. I think that's how it's always portrayed in television and movie. Here's my unkempt stack of papers. Now you do something with it and <laughs> take over from here. Well, that's, that's, that's the thing. Uh, Amazon does now what legacy publishers do for other authors. They will copy edit it for you. They will format it for you. Uh, they can even help you find a cover. So one way or another, you can get your work on the street. So you've had a lot of, a lot of experience both writing, your, uh, writing individually as well as collaborating with other individuals. Maybe you could speak to some of the differences, some of the joys that each each brings, uh, and maybe some of the potential hurdles that you've had to face because those processes are so different. Well, when you're writing by yourself, you are in charge of everything. You don't have to justify your choices to anyone else. You don't have to provide a coherent outline because if you know where it was you were going with your story, you can just do it. On the other hand, when I collaborate with somebody, I write a lot faster than I do by myself because I can enjoy the process. Uh, but when I'm working with somebody else, I love bouncing ideas off them. And you create a synergy. You have style A, your partner has style B, but the book that comes out is style C because it's a compromise between the two of you. You really, really have to trust and respect your other uh, half's talents. You don't even have to like them. There is a notable pairing in science fiction who uh, went through a period where they were not speaking for several years, and yet they were still writing books together. They respected one another's talent, but they were not getting along. Uh, it can happen. And you have to be willing to do 100% of the work. Uh, the last book I did with Bob Aspirin, he died in the middle of the work we were doing on it. And we had a deadline. So I had to pick up and do the rest of the book. And I got an incredibly unsympathetic call from the publisher of the time and who said, you know, uh, while Bob's passing is still fresh in people's minds, do you think you could get the book in two months early? Oh, you're kidding. <sighs> that just is that's dirty that's distasteful yeah but that that said you have to be willing to do 100% of the work because stuff happens life happens people get into car accidents um, people's, people get into writer's block uh, they have other things they must do people have babies people have crises and you do as much as you can with respect to the work that you have agreed to do. It's always best, I think, when you have a collaboration going that you set down ground rules ahead of time. Who's in charge? Is your partner going to be the one who has their eyes on the manuscript last before it goes into the publishing house, or is it you? Uh, do you want to write the heroes or the villains, or do you want to write the... Uh, master villain and the other person does the sidekick do you want to do the hero do you want to do her sidekick how is it you want to split up the work and who mm, who gets precedent if you have a disagreement 
top billing. Sooner or later, somebody has to compromise. And you hope that both of you agree, but sometimes you can't. So there's there's a, a lot of things to work out. And if you do it in advance, you stand the chance of salvaging the friendship at the end of it. <laughs> when I worked with Anne McCaffrey, for example, she was boss, no question. I mean, she had the first New York Times best-selling science fiction novel ever. No, no man, no no Heinlein, no no Asimov. It was Anne, mm -hmm. uh, and I was proud to be able to work with her. I was a very junior writer at the time, and you cannot have asked for better on-the-job training than working with her. She was generous. She held my hand through things. Uh, if she liked an idea that I came up with better than one that uh, she had come up with, she would use it, no question. She was that confident in her own talent, her own judgment. And you can't say that about everybody. So it was terrific for me. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine having that kind of an opportunity to be able to, to just be able to have um, that kind of a collaboration, to have a chance to, to see the process. Because I have to imagine while everybody's writing process has some similarities, that there have to be some differences, and to be able to see what those differences are, and just kind of, as kind of an insight into the personality of that individual, it's got to be pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yes, it was. What is? Well, I guess I guess what I was going to ask because I got so many questions, they're all trying to come out at the same time. <laughs> What uh, now? You've had these instances where you've been able to collaborate with uh, with authors. When you see other collaborations and that you've had time to read through, have you been able to kind of pick out like, oh, this is this person, and this is kind of the style of this other person? Yes, yeah, I can, and I can also see where the, both of them wanted to say something. So they said it both ways. Uh, stylistically, yeah, one person should go over it, smooth it out at the end. But if it if it works for you, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to criticize somebody's process as long as it comes out to be a good story. And sometimes writing the heroes and writing the villains differently works. So it just has to be consistently done, and they both have to agree that it came out well. And that the editor thinks so, too. <laughs> now, I, I guess my question kind of goes back to a little bit of what I asked before in the logistics part of it. Because it's not like you guys are just one person's in one room on a table and one person's in another room at a table and you're just writing and talking. I, I've got to believe that at some instances it's completely opposite ends of the country. So logistically, how do you write and compose these things with other people when they are just you know not around at all oh not only uh, other sides of the country other sides of the world and lived in ireland i live in illinois there <laughs> yeah. are as many ways to collaborate with people as there are collaborations you can sit side by side and work on the manuscript t together literally uh you can split it up as i said one person is writing the heroes sections, one person's writing the villain sections. 
you can split it up chapter by chapter, uh, but that's pretty artificial because it won't necessarily divide evenly. Uh, when I was working recently with Dr. Travis Taylor on the young adult science fiction books that we did, he liked to work in 10,000 word sections. So I wrote the first 10,000 words of each of the two books we've done so far, and then he did the next ones, and back and forth they went until we were finished with the stories. And during each go-round, I would go through his work and clear up the things that I knew best. And when he got the manuscript, he would go through and do the things that he knew best, such as rocket science, because he is an actual rocket scientist. Nice. So, uh, yeah, we, we, had, we had a lot of fun with it. So that worked, too. I have also known people who wanted to write certain sections of a, of a book that um, were not necessarily uh, chronological. Some people, so it's important to have a strong outline or at least a really strong guideline. There, there are so many different ways to do this. Just very, very individual for the project. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I just thought of something. I don't, I don't want to forget this. <laughs> so, in in looking at some of this, you you talked about uh, the myth series. Um, there was kind of an offshoot, not just with uh, well, not an offshoot, but a couple of books uh, with that series as well as Xanth that were actually like almost like choose your own adventures. Um, well, with the, Zanth, with the Zanth series, there actually were Choose Your Own Adventures. That was the uh, Crossroads Project. Right. That was published by Bill Fawcett. And that was those were my first books. There were two that I wrote in Pern and two that I wrote in Zanth. The, the project came along because Choose Your Own Adventures for two more years were going to be relevant. And then Nintendo came along and that was the end of that. <laughs> But in the meantime, uh, Bill went to first uh, Tor Books and proposed the Crossroads Adventures, which would be Choose Your Own Adventures set in licensed science fiction or fantasy worlds. So you had uh, Zel uh, Roger Zelazny's um, uh, Nine Princes in Amber and Christopher Stashev's The Wizard in Spite of Himself and Sam Pern, quite a number of others. Uh, and they, they came out really well, I think. The first one that did come out was one that I wrote uh, in a set in Pern called Dragon Harper, which took Master Harper Robinson back when he was just a journeyman on his first assignment and, uh, and wrote him all over Benton, uh, Benton Weir and Benton Hole. So that was, that was a huge amount of fun. I had to explain to Anne how Choose Your Own Adventures worked. So I drew out the, the chart that shows where each of the sections ended up. And I, I wrote up an eight-page choose-your-own-adventure for her so that she could see how it worked called Robinson Hits the Sauce. <laughs> and when she goes to a, a, a gather at Bend and Hold and has just a little too much wine and has a couple of misadventures. So... Uh, 
I was reminded of it. I had totally forgotten about it. But after Anne passed away, her son uh, was going through her things, and he found it, and he sent it back to me. So I have this, this obnoxious thing. But uh, it, it gave her a good laugh, and it also gave her the structure for the thing that I was going to be doing with uh, on a greater scale. I like the title. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> I, I kind of want to read it now. <laughs> See, it start with Dragon, so they couldn't, uh, they couldn't put it in the series. Oh. <laughs> it's, um, actually, that kind of touches on something that's a little different. You talked about how the Choose Your Own Adventures weren't going to be able to maintain their, their kind of popularity. How has... How has the audience, the the consumer, changed over over the last couple of decades? Um, have you noticed a, a difference in how people consume uh, your work or work in general? Is there has there been kind of um, something that has been really good that's come out of it? Has it been more challenges? What's what is what is the what is the market? I guess like now. Well, for me. One of the things that has happened is stories that I wrote for adults back when I began are being considered young adult now because I won't say that the people have become more mature, but their expectations have changed. They like a lot more angst. They like a lot more violence. They like a lot more dystopia. So anything that has a happy-go-lucky ending is considered to be young adult. It's it's hmm. it's not it's not mature enough, I guess. And I found that a little disconcerting that someone would say, "Oh, you know," but I had always meant, at least my fantasy, to be able to be read by uh, older kids. Smart ten, average twelve year old can read, say, the myth- mythology books, and I leave them clean on purpose for that reason is because when I was growing up, I would like to have had more things like the mythology books or uh, Diane Duane's books. I would love to have had um, So You Want to Be a Wizard at my hands when I was a kid. But they weren't there. They weren't written yet. Diane's only a couple years older than I am, so I had to live without that. But I don't want kids to have grown up without something that will take them over that bridge from childhood to adulthood and still be able to enjoy science fiction. The other thing that has changed, of course, is e-publishing. Mm-hmm. Because when they first started talking about doing e-publishing, I was not in favor of it because I couldn't see how I could get paid for it. And that was a concern of quite a lot of my friends as well. We do this for a living. If somebody is going to rip us off, uh, and suddenly put out you know, thousands of, of pirate copies of our work, then, then we have nothing that we can feed our families with or pay the electric bill with. But now that e-publishing has finally figured out that you can't charge the same thing for a bunch of pixels as you can for an actual physical book, and they brought the prices down. I don't know if you remember how much e-books cost when they first started coming out. It's oh, ridiculous. Yeah. But... You can find sources for lots of books to come free. I have a whole host of websites that I check every day for uh, free or discounted ebooks. And being able to carry a massive library in your back pocket has tremendous advantages. I just came back from a long trip, 
And while I had paper books with me, I also had a Kindle, which I just bought on Prime Day. And it's just fantastic to be able to have that at hand. And that changes the way people consume books. They consume quite a large number of them. And I do get queries when I'm standing at the Bard's Tower booth. Are these on Kindle? Are these on Nook? Uh, are they on audiobooks? And that's another thing that has changed is when my first audiobooks came out, uh, the, the, a few of the ones that I did with Anne, they were heavily abridged because they were on cassette. Yeah, I hated that. Oh, yeah, because yeah. they weren't big enough. You could get a, well, I don't think we ever went above four cassettes with any of Anne's works, but I, I remember distinctly seeing something in the library that were 12 and 20 cassettes. And you can just imagine the horror of having one go blank or unwind or get caught in your machine. And then you could put them on a CD, but even those are limited. So now uh, everything's a download and it's instantaneous and they can be any length you want. So people can have, if you love a book, you want, you want more. Mm -hmm. And if you really, really love a book, you want it to be as big as possible. So actually, that's that's another change is the size of books. They've gotten huge. If like, you look at the like Robert Jordan levels. Yes, as a matter of fact, I work with Bain Books a lot, and we do love a good doorstop. <laughs> I, uh, you know, the what you said kind of brings back uh, a small memory of mine. Uh, the first time that I was introduced to Reader's Digest and not understanding that I was not getting the whole book at the time and having a conversation with somebody when I was young and 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 them talking about things that didn't happen in what I read. Right. <laughs> it just was it's not. Shocking because they cut out whole subplots and you never know. They did a good job of it, but it's still unsatisfying. Kind of. Well, so from what you had mentioned before about being concerned from a compensation standpoint, my question kind of pertains to not digging into your finances, but when you were making money before and then later and then now, do you think that the value you're getting for your works is the same or better or worse than what it was before with all the uh, e-publishing I get a higher royalty for my e-publishing than I do for my paper books because there's too many pieces of the pie being taken out of the paper books. That makes sense. You can get uh, romance writers used to get as little as 2 to 4% of cover for their uh, romances. Science fiction was in the 4 to 6 range and then became 6 to 8 range and for trade paperbacks and hard covers you got more. But for e-publishing, and at first the publishers were trying very hard to keep it to the same level, and uh, authors pretty much said, well, then we'll do it ourselves. And they said, no, 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 don't go, don't go. <laughs> uh, so it generally starts at 20% and goes up from there. Well, that's good. It's, it's a bunch of pixels. And yes, they still have to edit it. Yes, they have still have to put a, a cover on it. Yes, they still have to format it. And yes, there's a certain amount of marketing, 
But you don't have to ship a physical book. You don't have to pay for paper. You don't have to pay for printing. You don't have all the losses involved with a physical object. So what, if anything, do you think is going to be the ultimate effect? Uh, I, I guess uh, a lot of what we deal with on our podcast, we have a, a keen interest in mm -hmm. comic books and pop culture. And specifically, in my mind, I, I like the way that comic books have kind of branched more out into television, into movies, into mm -hmm. other formats. There seems to be this more prevalent cross-lacing of the different genres, the different, not, sorry, not genres, but the different... Um, media? The different media. Uh, do you think this is, this is going to, not only will it continue, what do you think is going to be the positive effect? What in your imagination would you be hoping for from this cross-pollination? Oh, it's already happened. When I was growing up, there possibly, I'll be generous, four science fiction shows on the air at any one time, maybe. Uh, at the same time Star Trek was on the air, there was a program called It's About Time, which was two astronauts who accidentally got thrown back to caveman oh, days. I forgot about that. that. So there was Twilight Zone and Outer Limits, which uh, Outer Limits was more of a horror story as mm. far as I was concerned. And lost in space and that was largely it well look around you now every every movie that makes money pretty much is a science fiction or fantasy story and most of them are comic book movies some of them are really really good mm -hmm. and it's a, such a pleasure you know to, to look around and say we we geeks we won our culture has taken over and I'm cool with that so we already have a success. And, yeah, books are probably going to go in on that. Now that, now that you can render them into e-books, and, and a, a, a print book takes up incredibly little room. So there's room for us to add music or uh, gifts or something else to that and possibly make it a more interactive experience. Harkening back, of course, to Choose Your Own Adventures in a way. But still, uh, there's there's room for expansion on that. The publishing industry has been talking about adding content to books for years. Well, and some of the adaptations are beginning so good. I'm, I know as a fan of literary and comic book adaptations that there, was, there were some stutter steps as the technology had to catch up uh, with the ability to render what the authors were imagining. And the, and the implementation had to change. But now so much of it is so good. Seeing something like uh, Good Omens, for example, being, loved it. that was fantastic. And it was so true to the book, which I adored. The casting was brilliant. Yeah. And the special effects were just fun. There weren't that many of them. But what was, what was done was absolutely right for the project. You know, you don't have to overwhelm people with spaceship chases or uh, a creature with 16 arms, you know, waving them in front of you. It's just what's needed to tell the story. What of your works, if you had your dream 
would you love to see taken into another format? Oh, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I know, silly question. Both major in college. I have a sort of cinematic way of thinking about things, so i I would like to I would like to see my things make uh, make the movies or the television. The mythology series would make probably a really good uh, TV series. I would have thought before uh, different networks, but now probably the Disney Channel or Nickelodeon, Celebi, uh, the Magic Touch, which is about fairy godparents in Chicago. And that that would make that would actually make a good movie, but my my lady doctor in space, the Taylor's Art books, would make a good movie, uh, or even a good series. But I really, really love my Lord Thomas Cadago books, the the Imperium series, because they are fun. They are a good deal of fun, and they you would have lots of scope to use special effects in that because a lot of them take place in space. And especially the first one, there would be a lot of rendering and image image changing because that's part of part of the thought, in fact. And it would also be much much easier to create my aliens now than it was ever before. Yeah, I don't need a whole lot of a uh, lot lot less practical effects nowadays. It's true. Well, we we've, we've always been hoping that the myth adventures. Uh, it we've had pub, uh, producer after producer say that they're interested in them and then various things have happened and they just fell through and sooner or later you know it'll happen I know not too long ago everybody well I can't say everybody that's probably inaccurate but I would say at least the vast majority of people have that one book in their childhood that was kind of uh, or maybe a handful of books that, that, that really kind of inspired them and I've been Lucky enough, I, I basically had two that, that I was really particularly fond of. I thought one of them had zero chance to ever be made into a movie, and the other one would have been unlikely. And they've both been made into movies now, one being uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, which maybe wasn't quite what I hoped it would be, <laughs> but at least it was made. They recognized that it could, could should be made. And uh, John Belarus did a fantastic uh, series of uh, young adult books. Uh, the House of the Clock in Its Walls uh, came out just earlier earlier this year, late last year. I'm starting to lose track. But uh, mm, when was that? <laughs> I don't remember. Last year, I think it was last. I think year. it was last year. But uh, not familiar with that one. But uh, then again, there's a <laughs> myriad books I have not read. It was like Harry uh, Harry Potter before there was Harry Potter, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so I I was slightly born in, in the wrong time in, in some respects. <laughs> but uh, so okay, one other thing that just popped in my mind, and this is uh, I know this is kind of going in all sorts of different directions. But when I was doing a little little of the research to try and uh, find some interesting things, uh, one popped into my mind or not popped into my mind, but popped onto the computer and then it got stuck in my mind. I saw that you, or what it was around 2008, did a donation to uh, Northern Illinois University into their rare books archives. Is that accurate? Yes, the uh, special collections librarian, uh, Lynn Thomas, 
solicited quite a number of us to give her our papers. So I gave her manuscripts and uh, copies of each book that I had that I had <laughs> copies to give, uh, short story manuscripts, many other things. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being archived. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, she collected quite a number of people, and unfortunately she has moved on to a much better job, and I applaud that the fact that uh, University of Illinois was smart enough to scoop her up. But uh, I, my, my works will continue to be collected, so I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. That's, That's fun. amazing. I, I was kind of going to chime in about living in the Midwest. You know, we live in the Midwest. We're one state over. So, right. um, hey, neighbor. <laughs> how has that, um, you know, where you live and how you've grown up around where you live, how has that influenced your works over the years? Kind of a normal uh, upbringing, uh, if, if you can call it that, and less fast-paced than people who would live on either coast, and that's okay with me. It's nice to have the wide open spaces available, I don't know. I, I like I like living a quiet life. You know, let let my imagination run wild. I would just as soon live in a quiet place. I think I have to agree with that. Living in a quiet place is pretty good. Now, reading about a quiet place, I think I fell asleep uh, uh, reading Walden. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> I tried, just couldn't get through it. <laughs> so. It's, 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 a lot of other people, I, I ran into David Morell, who wrote uh, First Blood on an airplane. We were carrying the same laptop computer at a time when a laptop computer unfortunately weighed about 12 pounds. Uh, and we were both complaining about its shortcomings. And I found out he lives in Iowa. Hmm? Whenever he needs to talk to Hollywood, he just gets on a plane. He does not live there. And I thought, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing what's best for me. Yeah. Sounds right to me. Yeah. In fact, it gives you access to certain things that you might not normally get. In fact, it's a question that Richard often asks. Mm. That's true. It's a pizza question, right? <laughs> so, yeah, we, whenever we talk to people who are from Illinois or maybe spend time in the Chicago area, we always like to ask um, your favorite place or your favorite style of uh, pizza. Well, of course, I like the Chicago crust. Um, I think New York pizza is, is a cracker smeared with ketchup, but I, I wouldn't malign their choices. <laughs> but a, a pizza should be a meal. And I have grown up uh, eating some really good ones over the years. Uh, we've, we've had my brother, in fact, <laughs> bust tables in a really nice one that was uh, near our house. for. for uh, and in fact, I hear that it just closed, which breaks my heart. A piece of a piece of my childhood gone. And there are many good different chains that have grown up around this area. So when people come into Chicago, they they say, "So where's the best pizza?" Was, All right, let's ask what you consider to be good pizza, and then we'll choose the one that we go to. <laughs> Do you want to try stuffed pizza? Is that too much for you? Do you like a thick crust, a thin crust? It's, uh, I think Chicago does it really well. That they do. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm a, 
I'm a deep dish kind of guy. I like the bread to toppings ratio to be uh, skewed in what most people would consider to be the wrong direction. But uh, <laughs> yeah, pizza has grown up also over the years. There, there used to be a tiny place that was in a bowling alley near near my house, which is the place that all of my friends went because, for one thing, the pizzas were extremely cheap, and <laughs> we good. didn't know any better. But now we do. And there's just so many to styles and places to choose from. And I think, you know, when people travel into or around Chicago, that's one of the things that they just associate or they know. Right? That's yeah, a common place item. Yeah. Chicago, you got pizza, crime bosses. Wait, no, that was that was more Prohibition era. That was a really long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> the crimes moved uh, east at this point. <laughs> Well, the, just we get tired of having people associate us with uh, with Al Capone and all of the other dismal things of the past. Oh yeah. I used to go overseas, and people would say, "Oh, Chicago." Uh, <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> then, then one year we we went over, and they said, "Oh, Chicago, Michael Jordan." It's, yeah, yeah, Michael Jordan. Yes, much better. Thank you. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Um, the other question that we like to ask is less geographically oriented, but a lot of what we talk about also is as, as part of what influences pop culture is music because that, that touches us and a lot of creators of, of new things uh, often are going to be listening to music in the process. Are you somebody that listens to music while you write or is, is there something that really inspire, inspires you to make new things? I, I don't actually I keep the television off I don't listen to music because I listen to it uh. if, if I'm doing that I'm not writing I know people have playlists I know people uh, you know fill their ears with sound I can't do it and it's just it's just as well I want to listen to the voices in my head instead of what's going on outside of it I have really eclectic tastes in music uh, when I was very small my dad was a record spinner for NBC radio oh cool so, yeah, it was, a, it was a union job, in fact. My grandfather was the recording secretary of the Musicians' Union uh, for the last 20 years of his life. And he signed the union card of practically every musician in Chicago. So uh, when my dad was, uh, was working for NBC Radio, one of the things that happens at radio stations is that they would get in stacks and stacks and stacks of records, several copies of each. And most of the stations would put them on carts funny little things that look like uh, eight-track tapes, or four-tracks, if you remember those. Yeah. Uh, or reel-to-reel, long ago. And then the records would, uh, one of the copies would go into the record library. And then they would put all of the rest of them in piles for the staff to take home. So my dad brought home Broadway musicals and classical music and jazz, blues. Uh, we had the first Beatles records in the entire neighborhood. Man. So I think I still have them. And it was uh, it was a great experience because we played them on the family stereo, and I listened to all of these things. So I love music. I love lots of different kinds of music, but I don't listen to it when I write. That's that's crazy. That's that's a, a very very cool thing to have grown up with. It makes me slightly reminiscent of uh, 
uh, high fidelity, John Cusack, his his wish being able to be in that situation for all those <laughs> records, being able to beat meet some of the bands at the time. That's going to be pretty awesome. And vinyl is still alive. Like eight tracks and cassette tapes are basically a they're gone, but vinyl, like you can go to a Cracker Barrel and buy vinyl right now. That's right, because it has the best sound. There's it is the most fragile, it is the most fugitive, so you have to treat it with a great deal of care. But the, the high fidelity. Yeah. The marvel of the sound. There we go. Do you have any specific questions for our, our guest of honor? No. I often I often dominate a lot of these interviews. I, I don't intend to, but I end up having so many questions that they just fall out of me. That's okay. <laughs> so you were talking about teaching earlier. Um, do you have like a, a steady teaching gig, or do you t- kind of focus on these on these gatherings at, at uh, conventions and things to to impart some of your wisdom to to learning writers? Oh dear. That sounds uh, really pretentious, and I try not to be. Uh, I, I did actually teach in a college, uh, Columbia College, Chicago, for one year, and I found I wasn't getting any of my own work done, and the commute was stupid. But that was that was educational and interesting. I actually like teaching. I found that part out. I hated the paperwork. I hated the commute. But I liked interacting with the students and finding out what made them tick. But mostly, yeah, I, I teach at conventions. I participate in writers' workshops at our local uh, main convention, WindyCon, which is in November every year, and at DragonCon, which is in Atlanta every Labor Day weekend. In fact, I'm preparing for that now. I've got a stack of manuscripts beside me that I'm working on for a two-day writers' workshop, and the... 20 people who are in it with me every year, uh, different, different, you know, rotating cast of characters. They, uh, we all talk about each other's work, and I try to give them the benefit of my experience. That sounds like a pretty, pretty fun time to me. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a great deal of prep work, and I try to make sure that I'm giving them the best advice I possibly can. I'm not there to rewrite their work. I'm there to help them make it the best that they possibly can make it. That's awesome. So as we start to wind down, I know we've dominated quite a bit of your time already, and it's been fantastic. Um, Is there anything that you're really excited about, not not counting DragonCon, uh, that's coming up that you want to kind of talk about and uh, tell people about? Well, uh, please... At DragonCon and Salt Lake City Comic Con and Minneapolis, I don't know if they're calling it FanX or Comic Con or Galaxy Fest, whatever, I'll be appearing in the Bard's Tower booth. And I really, I really do enjoy it. You know, come up, talk to me. Uh, I'll tell you about my books. You can tell me what things you like. It's fun to go and play bookstore. It really is. Let's see. Um... I just had a story accepted for the Four Horsemen uh, universe, an anthology that they're doing that's, uh, that's coming up. Nice. And I'm, I'm really pleased about that. I just got the, 
the very nicest acceptance note. So I'm really uh, excited. That just came today too. So uh, probably just drawing a blank. Uh, my husband and I just came back from a really lovely trip. So uh, just kind of getting getting back into this time zone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm, I live in this time zone. I don't travel out of it much, yet I somehow always feel jet lagged. Don't know how that happens. <laughs> well, it's the calendar. It just keeps getting the numbers just keep getting bigger on this calendar here. Yeah, That's pretty bad. So, please ask. You know, if you've got anything that you want to ask me, please do. Well, let's see here. Okay, I do have one. I do have one more thing that I, I wanted to ask. Um, it had to do a little bit. A lot of times, as as readers, we don't get. Uh, we get to know the author through their work, but we often don't know them past that. I mean, if we're lucky enough to hear an interview, if we're lucky enough to read an interview, something like that, we, we, we get small glimpses. But when you have a chance to work with some of these other writers, you have more of a, more of a, a connection. Is there anything that you can say about either... Uh, you've already said a lot about uh, Anne McCaffrey. Is there anything you could say about either Pierce Anthony or uh, Robert Lynn Aspirin that would be kind of a, a little tidbit that would uh, be really interesting to know? Bob and I discovered, uh, once we met, we, we d- would seem on, on the surface to be the two most unlike people that you could possibly imagine. And it turned out we have the same sense of humor. We both are really, really soppy about cats. We both nice. love show tunes, and we would walk up the street singing them, and my husband would cross the street and pretend he wasn't with us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but Bob was a natural raconteur. He was a terrific, terrific storyteller and had the knack of when you were talking to him, you were the only person in the world. You were the only other person that existed. And it was an incredibly attractive trait, but he was also a generous soul, really generous. And I uh, loved working with him. I miss him terribly. Especially when we were working on the next myth book, we would get together again at DragonCon. You, you see this sort of coming into my speech a lot. DragonCon is important to me. We would sit in one of the hotel restaurants, and I would type because I typed faster than he did. And the two of us would start throwing ideas back and forth. And this is why collaboration is so much fun. And we would be laughing like loons and say, oh, what, well, what if that happened? Oh, and yeah, and, and yes, and, like, like improv comedians. And people would be passing us, you know, looking over their shoulder, trying to hear what we were doing, but never able to really get a, any sense of it. As if we would have told them, because they can wait and see what comes out in the book. That's right. <laughs> um, Pierce was interesting. He was he was very, very nice, and he had fabulous ideas. Pardon me, I'm going to have to take a drink of water. Here. Oh, you're good. <laughs> I will take the same I opportunity. Was, I was impressed by his passion for what he wrote and how, how deep and detailed he got into things. He was also one of the first writers who reached out to his fans. He even invested in a... Uh, an 800 number. That's 1-800 right. high peers or 
you could you could call him or you could call I don't know if you received a, re a recorded message or if you actually spoke to him but he had that and that was really early on very innovative man but also very private I can I can imagine I was I was kind of hoping for the it was really fun to work with Piers Anthony but after the hundred thousandth pun <laughs> yeah. I love puns I adore puns so he and I were always going to get along very well and when I wrote the two choose your own adventures I created some really hideous puns of my own and in fact working on the myth adventures we have hideous puns throughout yeah I am I am the one who came up with the kobolds from kobold really yes that's awesome that was always my favorite my my uh uh that maybe had the largest impact on me of of any of the things that I read uh, to this day. Uh, Piers Anthony is um, uh, part of the reason that I am just full of awful puns, and my my children are less than pleased about that fact. <laughs> well, you know, the people who receive puns are never as happy about it as the people who dispense puns. That's accurate. Yeah, and it's as it should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't. I can't thank you enough. I, uh, I I'm really ecstatic that I was had the chance to to speak with you uh, this evening, and I really hope to uh, see more of your work and see some of it actually put up on the big screen or on television because I I know I've enjoyed what I've read. Mm -hmm. Well, good. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate the chance to chat with you too. Yes, thank you. 